G'day, I'm Scotty North, and this is Zenium Live, where we talk all things money, finance, and property. And uh, today's show, I'm joined by PJ Patterson from Keystone. How are you going, PJ? I'm great, Scotty. I'm uh, here outside the White House waiting to see who is going to move in. Uh, well, it's, yeah, uh, look, it's, it's, it's unsure uh, at the moment. It, yeah, it is very unsure, and uh, we... You know, we titled this The Race That Stops the Globe because uh, on Tuesday this week we had the Melbourne Cup in Australia and that's the race that stops the nation. But this race has not only stopped the globe at the moment, it's completely, we're all infatuated with it, it seems. Uh, and there's no end in sight just yet. No, there's no end in sight. Unfortunately, uh, it's a very, very tight race still with a number of key states uh, very, very close on the vote count. So Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Georgia, Nevada, and Alaska have yet to be called. And with Donald Trump sitting on, I think, 214 electoral votes and Joe Biden sitting on, I think, 230-something. Um, no, I think he was up. I mean, it depends who you read. It was looked like he was yeah. up to almost 264. Well, there you go. Sorry, 264. Yeah. Uh, all, all Joe Biden, you know, effectively needs to do right now is just secure any number of those states, any one of them. And he's uh, he is the new president elect of the U.S. So um, it's no surprise, really, that this has occurred. We knew many people knew it was going to be a very tight election, despite all the polls listening to the radio this morning and commentary about pollsters. Uh, I think the public and many people have figured out that pollsters actually have no idea what's going on because they called for a landslide victory by Joe Biden. But that's uh, it's been anything. But I think there's only a couple million votes between the two of them in many states. You know, again, uh, minimal, minimal uh, difference in the uh, number of votes one way or the other. So it's a really tight race. And um, just goes to show you that the country over there, the U.S., is probably still pretty divided in terms of who they like and don't like. Yeah, for sure. And look, I think that uh, while, you know, we're not necessarily here to talk about Joe and Don, the Don, <laughs> um, we are talking about the stocks and shares and how they've responded. Because from what I've been seeing, uh, it, it's not exactly acting how I thought it would. With an uncertain election, I thought there'd be a lot of uncertainty in the stock market and that would reflect that and perhaps people withdrawing from it and acting in that same sort of manner. But uh I don't know what's going on, but it looks like it's up to me. Yes. Well, the uncertainty, uh, we were not short on uncertainty in the lead up to the election. So I would suggest you, if you went back and looked over the last five to seven trading days, notwithstanding the last day of trading on the New York Stock Exchange, the market was exceptionally volatile. It was uh, Volatility was rising across a number of the key volatility uh, metrics that I look at, a number of the key indexes. Uh, rising a lot, and we were seeing a sell-off into the election. Now, oftentimes that can happen. You see uh, people positioning for you know a certain outcome, but all of a sudden yesterday and overnight, as the election um, unfolded, for whatever reason, traders and investors gained more confidence and started to uh, reposition their portfolios. So they started to buy. Um, they started to buy treasuries and, and drive up the price of those. So interest rates decreasing across the uh, spectrum there in the U.S. They started to buy equities, in particular tech and uh, and broadly uh, other indexes. 
um, and uh, just you know started putting money back to work in the market. So the volatility, we had it. It subsided briefly, so it's come off quite a bit, which is a good thing. You don't want a lot of volatility in markets because it makes them much more investable when you don't have volatility. Uh, but we shall see how this uh, how this unfolds over the next couple of days. If there's a contested election, who knows what that'll do to markets? But I think there was a lot, obviously, of uncertainty in the lead up to the election. And now that we've got the election out of the way, and it's really you know one way or the other, we know uh, it, it's likely to be Joe Biden um, at this stage. I think uh, that's given certainty back to markets. Yeah, it's funny, sort of that, isn't it? So the uh, we've sort of planned our show today based on the fact that, uh, you know, there would be a winner announced and we can we can look at the activity of the market and, and plan for what's going forward and make some commentary around that. Uh, we know we're near to a winner being announced. And uh, as you said, it could be some days until that is actually happened. But in the meantime, you're saying volatility is down, but the performance of the market's been up. I mean, it's it to me, it's like upside down land. <laughs> well, perf again, performance, uh, well, volatility and market performance are inextricably linked. So as volatility rises, and it's one of the key things I look at in my business, as volatility rises, the stock market is falling. Uh, and that that's a relationship that's very well known. So one of the reasons volatility rises is because typically you're seeing sell-offs in the market. And so again, last week, we had a lot of volatility. We had the markets declining. And I think now that we've finally gotten to the day, uh, and now the day after the election, the markets, for whatever reason, they've, they've just gone, okay, well, the reality is that either candidate it was is going to, whoever wins, is going to unleash unprecedented stimulus on the U.S. economy. They're going to try to do their best to fix it. So I think that Wall Street, people that invest in equities, et cetera, have figured that out and have realized that, you know what, it actually doesn't matter whether it's Biden in the chair or Trump in the chair, we're going to get a massive stimulus package, and that's going to be good for stocks over the long term. Look, I, I agree, and I think that uh, we've made the commentary before that any time that once an election has happened and the winner is either perceived or locked in, etc., then that in itself creates stability because now for the next four years, there's no other election, right? So we know that this person is going to be in the chair for that length of time. So by default of having the election, people seem to move on. It's, I don't know why there's like this yardstick in the middle of someone's planning or life or whatever. And then once that's done, it's like, oh, okay, well, back to normal, even though it's we still don't really know what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. And uh, so, again, you know, one day does not make uh, a market or a trend, but certainly, you know, it's, it's a good sign that we haven't had all this rioting and all this other stuff that was predicted, civil unrest, um, I guess really the only thing they need to do now is probably do the recount. I think uh, Trump has called for recount in Wisconsin because it's such a tight race there. There's a number of postal votes, I think, that still need to be counted probably in these key states. So it, look, this, this could play out over the next week or two um, before we actually know precisely who the winner is. I have a feeling, though, that one of them will concede uh, probably in the next few days. I think the writing will probably be on the wall and they'll be advised to just concede um, these personalities, though, between these two are pretty big. So I don't know which which one of them it'll be, uh, but um, it, it's going to be an interesting next couple of days. There's no doubt about that. Mate, it sure is. And uh, reference back to the Melbourne Cup. I mean, uh, there was a you know a tragedy with one of the horses there on that track uh, for that race this year again, and they uh, 
went to the back of the pack and end up having to, to euthanize, which is very unfortunate for such a beautiful animal. Um, but let's hope the same thing doesn't happen to the loser of the presidential election, right? <laughs> well, I think the Secret Service probably have something to say about trying to uh, euthanize a president. But uh, <laughs> nevertheless, uh, look, as I said a moment ago, it really doesn't matter who ends up in the chair. The reality is they're going to unleash a lot of stimulus in the U.S. They're going to try to fix the economy. They're going to try to get the country back to, um, you know, moving forward in, in, in a direction where it benefits all Americans and, you know, hopefully uh, reasserting leadership, both morally and um, economically in the world. And just, you know, trying to get us out of this whole COVID doldrum thing. And to that end, I know we're, we're probably wanting to pivot away from politics now and start talking about the economy and what's going on out there because Australia, of course, is having a, has had a good couple of days on the share markets. And it's looking very much like, um, as I had discussed in one of our last interviews where uh, I was discussing the quad model, Australia is very well positioned now in, um, certainly we'll see it in the first half of 2021 to uh, really start to grow. So one of the things we're seeing now around the world um, except for Europe. Europe is still in a, in a bit of a, uh, a mess because they're having their second wave of COVID. So they're, they're shutting down again and all their economic data is really, really bad. So Europe is, is yet to get through uh, this sort of phase three of um, the economic recovery. So they, they've got a bit more pain to go. But everywhere else around the world, particularly Asia Pacific, Australia, New Zealand, um, the U.S. is getting there. And we'll see again if their stimulus package um, you know, that they roll out probably late this year, or early next year, what it looks like. But the reality is we're, we've seen manufacturing growth begin to uh, accelerate. We're beginning to see life in the services industry. And um, that's real important because the services industry actually contributes um, roughly 63% of global output. So it's a massive figure, uh, the services sector, services industries. Um, in their contribution to the global economy. So we need to see, you know, travel resume. We need to see people getting back out and socializing and going to pubs and clubs and, and shopping and doing all of the things that we did before COVID hit us. So if we continue on this trajectory, the rate of change of a lot of this data is positive, And that's a good sign for the global economy. Um, and again, particularly that Asia Pacific region that Australia resides in. So as I mentioned before, in uh, one of our previous shows, uh, Australia, I think, is going to have a cracking first half of next year with a lot of positive things happening. RBA gave us a gift on Melbourne Cup Day as well uh, by reducing rates to uh, 0.1%. They cut. Yes, yeah, so uh, I wanted to talk about 15. that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, so there's a lot of support it, out there. Yeah, well, there is. And, and so on that rate cut that you mentioned there, so it was at 0.25, right? It was at 0.25 um, and they shaved and another 0.15. All right, so here's here's the thing. So normally they not normally in the past they've dropped a whole quarter percent, right? So mm -hmm. twenty five points. Uh, they've dropped fifteen this time. Mm -hmm. So there's one view of uh, train of thought that says they haven't dropped rates as much as in previous times, right? Which is fair enough because there's not too much else to go, right? No, um, there's not. <laughs> but there's another there's another train of thought which you know I, I think is has merit is that well that was a sixty percent rate cut. Yeah, yeah, you could look at it that way. Yeah, that that's exactly yeah. so right. That's substantial, um, right? I mean, so uh, you know, when we're talking the the percentages on such small numbers, mm. like that's a big deal. You dropped, you know, point one five percent out of point two five. That's a sixty percent. That's um, 
that's a, not a small amount. Now, what's it going to do? Well, we'll have to see. But I mean, when you base rates at virtually zero, and as we talked about in our last show, that the RBA has said that rates are going to be like this for a very long period of time. Yes. Mate, th- this is this is no cost money. Yeah, it, it's a real interesting world we live in now with uh, all the cheap and easy money out there. I, I should say cheap and not easy because, of course, banks have had to tighten up on their credit standards. There's been a lot of uh, work done around that with the Basel uh, uh, initiatives, um, you know, requiring banks to have uh, more tier one capital, this sort of thing. Tightening of lending standards and criteria in Australia uh, and a number of other sort of prudential measures that have been put in place to make sure that we don't go crazy with the borrowing, but certainly the rates are unprecedentedly low. This is as low as they've ever been in the history of Australia and probably in many parts of the world, history of the world. Uh, and what it will what it will bring, who knows? It usually takes a good uh, three to six months to see these sorts of things work their way through the economy. But I guess the point of bringing this up and discussing it is to say that the Reserve Bank of Australia has come out absolutely saying that they're supportive with monetary policy and they want us to get our economy growing again. Uh, The government, as we know, at the last budget rolled out a pretty good budget initiative with a lot of spending and a lot of support for our economy. So again, this is why I think we're set up uh, very well for the first half of next year to start to see these things working their way through the economy. You know, notwithstanding if if we have any other uh, out of the box event or black swan, as they're referred to, that could interrupt that. But uh, where the table is set, let's put it that way, the table is set for us to really kick off some serious recovery uh, next year. You'd be really disappointed if you lived in WA and everyone kept talking about this black swan event because you'd be sitting there going, oh, we're screwed, right? We've got black swans everywhere. They do. <laughs> I think you're right. And that's where they were originally discovered, I think, by the Dutch. They only had white swans. And then uh, some Dutch explorers landed in WA and went, oh, there's this thing called a black swan. There you go. I guess the one thing we're going to need to really start to look out for in Australia now uh, over the next couple of years is inflation and to see what that does. So the only thing that I think could ruin the party, as it were, with the a reserve bank and their interest rate policy would be if inflation began to rip to the upside. Now, I don't know that that's a very likely thing to occur because we've seen such a, you know, a large amount of economic damage occur. I think once, you know, getting us back to just normalcy will not cause a lot of inflation. Um, but the Australian currency should begin to appreciate uh, as well through the course of the next three, six, nine months, which will help us absorb um, any sort of inflation that we see in commodities and oil and and those sorts of things. So the inverse of that, of course, is the U.S. dollar, and that will be uh, continue to decline. That's a very well known position right now that uh, that they want the dollar to decline and to continue to decline. So we we should see at least some more strength in the Aussie dollar, which will help offset uh, some of the inflationary pressures that we'll undoubtedly see, as I said, in commodities, oil, agriculture, that sort of stuff. So it's the old uh, race to the bottom again for the US. So my my question on that was, uh, what happens if inflation is above interest rate? Right. I yeah, mean, that's, we, uh, we're, we're very much in that position now, and it's not really a position where we've necessarily been before as a country. Well, inflation probably already is running above interest rates. So really, the people that 
get hurt the most by that are savers. So uh, I can recall a few years ago, you know, you could get a two or, or three year uh, term deposit and the rates were somewhere in the 3% range. Well, nowadays, uh, a two or three year term deposit is probably, you know, well less than 1%. It's probably uh, 70 or 80 or 90 basis points or something like that. Maybe you could get 1%. But the inflation rate is probably still, real inflation is probably still running somewhere between 1% and 2%. It's a difficult thing to measure, but it's probably somewhere in that, pardon me, in that range. So the people that get hurt the most are your retirees on fixed incomes who have their money, say, sitting in the bank or in very low yielding securities or something of, of that nature, uh, like a term deposit. Uh, they are going to get hosed completely by these low interest rates. Uh, in fact, it's almost, you could call it a war on savers uh, with having such low interest rates. Yeah, I was talking to an, an elderly client the other day, or actually two weeks ago, and uh, their position was such that they, had, they, they owned everything, they retired, they were self-funded, and they essentially were living off uh, term deposits. Um, they had a pool of cash. Mm. Um, however, in the past two years, as you've said, that that's changed substantially. So, you know, your million dollars that was getting what thirty grand is now getting ten, mm. twelve thousand, or something. Um, that's a big difference in their return, which was the cash that they lived on. They lived off their cash pool. So they were actually thinking about, uh, you know, it's not without risk, but they're. They're aware of that, but they were thinking about helping some of the grandchildren with housing and actually being the bank, taking first mortgage on, on a position on some of the grandchildren's houses looking to buy. Same situation, deposits and all that sort of stuff because they were going to get a much higher return and they, uh, they had mortgage on the property. My point is not necessarily promoting that as a strategy, but people are looking now for ways to get their capital working because it's not working in banks. Yes, it's a it's a major concern, and uh, you know maybe the next uh, the topic for our next show should be something like how to invest in a low interest rate environment for uh, yield and capital growth. And one of my pet peeves in financial planning is this notion that the moment you retire or you turn sixty five and you retire, you go on a pension. You have to take all of your assets out of the share market or out of growth strategies and that sort of thing, and put them in all of this defensive stuff like a term deposit or really super. Uh, defensive investments. Um, and that is such a ridiculous notion that uh, if you're 65, you know, your life expectancy in Australia is 84, 85 if you're a female and 83, 84 if you're a male. And so you've got another at least 20 years to live. And you've just highlighted something there, which is a, a serious concern, which is those retirees who choose to go very defensive and put everything in, in term deposits uh, they're going to see their capital begin to dwindle because they're going to have to draw down on capital to fund their lifestyles because they're simply not earning enough interest. So one of the key questions that I often address with retirees is to say, well, you can you know, certainly put a portion of your portfolio if it makes you feel better or makes you feel safer into term deposits and things of that nature. But I encourage them uh, to please put a, you know, at least 50 or even 60 percent, keep those uh, Money is exposed to growth assets and to assets that will help outpace inflation because they don't really want to see if they can avoid it anyway, the capital uh, that they have available eroding. Uh, but your strategy that you just mentioned is, is actually a fantastic one. Um, you know, the, the retiree becoming the bank for the family is, uh, is, a, is a wonderful idea. Um, 
the only caveat to that, of course, is to uh, make sure that you document everything well and to have a lawyer prepare everything. Otherwise, you know, you could find yourself in a bit of uh, strive. That's that's right. Or uh, owning some houses that you perhaps didn't really want to own. So, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, on your grandkids. exactly. <laughs> so, uh, um, I mean, it does beg the question, though. I mean, uh, let's look at how banks make money. I mean, they make money on the spread between, you know, the interest rates, etc. Yes. Uh, now they haven't necessarily changed their spread. In fact, in some regards, they've increased the spread over the over, since interest rates have come down over the past, say, five years. They've essentially not always passed on the full rate spread. Uh, so does it really make a difference for banks? I mean, interest rates can be whatever. As long as they're getting that spread in the, the margin in the middle, they, they don't care, right? Well, yes. Yes and no. I mean, I think it's a little bit more complicated than uh, obviously than what you've just described there. I mean, the bank's cost of funds uh, isn't just based off the RBA cash rate. You know, the cash rate that the RBA sets is a metric by which a lot of other funding is priced. But certainly banks don't have a cost of funds of you know 0.1%. Their cost of funds would be much higher because they generate uh, a lot of their um, uh, cost, well, their funds, I should say, from their deposit holders. So all the deposit taking institutions in Australia still need to attract money in. And that's where you see those, uh, you know, those sidewalk uh, little displays that, you know, have the, the three month uh, term deposit of the week special out in front of the bank trying to, uh, you know, they're trying to attract those people like the retirees we were just uh, discussing to put money in the bank so they can then leverage that and lend it out. Um, so they certainly do, though, um, you know, in some cases they don't pass on the full rate cuts because they do need to increase the margin or they need to preserve margin. Because let's face it, we do need the banks to be profitable. They're an integral part of our economy and our economic system. Uh, excuse me. We certainly don't want them to be in any sort of trouble. And it's vitally important for our economy that banks are able to continue to lend money. So they they generate most of their income from the the, mar the um, interest rate income, and uh, so we need them to uh, we need them to be profitable. We need them to have that that bit of spread. The good thing at the moment, though, is as we have previously discussed, is the RBA you know is committed pretty much I think to not touching interest rates for about three years, and to doing some quantitative easing, which is to say they intend to keep the one, two, and three-year rates in Australia very low. And this is why you're seeing these ridiculously awesome fixed rates for one, two, and three-year money. They're often this at the same price. So, um, you know, this, uh, this would probably be a good time if you have a lot of debt or you have mortgage debt, particularly owner-occupied debt, to consider refinancing your mortgages or contacting your lender and saying, hey, you know, give me a better deal uh, because there are some very, very sharp rates out there. Yeah, there is, and we contacted ours about four weeks ago, and uh, and and got a better deal on the variable. But the best deal available was definitely on a fixed rate, on that one, two, or three years. Uh, it mm. was it was very very low. I think we were looking at you know low twos. Uh, oh yeah. Bank, so that was was pretty good. Now on that lending, I want to uh, I've got some data here. So uh, Prosper Australia put out a tweet or an article the other day, and they said that. Australian land, total Australian land values increased by $422 billion last financial year. That's 20 times more than total banking profits. So uh, $422 billion in, in uplift of land values across Australia. That's right. a decent amount of money, mate. 
Now, you, you probably have about, what, 10, 10 12% of that, I reckon? Oh, I wish. I wish. Uh, I, I don't know that uh, you'd be sitting here talking to me right now. At least uh, maybe I wouldn't be in front of the White House. I might be, uh, you know, on top of the Empire State Building or something. But uh, <laughs> yeah, look, you know, I always I find it funny how these banks come out and say, you know, that whatever increased, you know, by whatever percent. I think it's ridiculous because it actually doesn't really matter. Um, you know, I often say to my clients, that there's only two times you are concerned about the price of your property, the day you buy and the day you sell. Everything else in between is just noise. So even if that were true, and let's let's assume for a moment that what you just said was true. So what? What are you going to do with it? How do you capitalize on that? Well, if you want to utilize that equity effectively, which is what they're saying, that uh, the value has grown, uh, which means that presumably all of us who own property in Australia now have, I guess, what did they say? 10% more? So we've got 10% more value on our no, property. No, it, it didn't say 10%. It just said uh, the, the total value was $422 billion increase. Now, these guys push like uh, a land tax and a more, they call it a more even distribution of wealth. And so they're saying it just makes it more expensive to live. Um, right. I went back through, and I agree with what you're saying. It doesn't make any difference. But I went back through and looked at how much lending as an average happened uh, that year. And it looked like uh, that value increase of 422 was about two and a half times the value of the amount of lending that happened. So, you know, you divide that by 2.5 or whatever it was, and that's that was the amount of lending. It was about 14 billion a month that was in lending. So that was, it was just an interesting correlation. If that's the case, then X amount of lending happens, but the actual value increases by two and a half times. Yeah. Again, I, you know, I don't know how they come up with a lot of these metrics because, you know, it's, it's like anything that you put up for sale, like you couldn't sell all of that at one time to one investor. So prices vary based on supply, demand, the availability of credit, so many other factors. And, and that's why I think a lot of that stuff is just white noise. It's just stupid to even, you know, mention something like that, because I'm not, I'm not saying you're stupid, but these guys that came up with it, no, no. you know, it's just so stupid. It. Well, to even... it for the day. Thanks. Um, I'm just going to go home and cry. No, look, I agree with you. That's why I wanted to bring it up because it's yeah. it's a metric that's that you can throw around. Oh, half a trillion dollar value increase. Okay, that's great. But yeah. as you said, unless you're buying or selling, unless mm. there's a transaction, and let's not even get into the fact that, okay, let's sell the lot. Well, well, you can't, right? Mm. Because there's not enough Australian dollars in you know, that's just a whole topic for another day. And who's gonna buy every piece of Australian property? It just doesn't yeah. exist. So I 100% agree with you. Those metrics are weird. I was more interested in the correlation between value uplift uh, with and loans. Lending. Yeah. Yeah, because if, um, then if we see loans come out and, and and there's more and more lending coming out, we might be able to start to predict in across the area, you know, where certain things might be rising in value and where are undervalued. Sure. So, I mean, with regard lending, we, we've probably discussed this. It's been a while if, if we have even talked about it ever. And that is the fact that in order to get asset price appreciation or inflation, you have to have credit growth. So in order for your house to go up in value, uh, the banks have to be lending money to people to buy housing to drive the price of housing up around you. So that's the only way really in this current economic system that we have that you're going to get um, value created. It's not even, I wouldn't even call it value, but you're going to get inflation in assets is by credit growing. So the fact that the bank lending, and I don't know uh, if you said if the bank lending numbers were up on previous year or, or what, but um, 
in order to see uh, any asset price rise, you must have some form of credit growth. So in periods where, and, and you need to look not too far back in history, but certainly during the crash of, uh, you know, 06 to 09, where you saw interest rates spike, you saw banks tighten credit, you know, the stock market shit itself, property prices went down. And there's your link right there. That's the correlation is when credit growth shrinks, asset prices shrink. Uh, so, you know, there's an interesting relationship, obviously, between interest rates and credit growth, because at a certain point, um, interest rates rise so far that people stop borrowing money. And, uh, and so that'll be the next evolution, I think, of this whole thing is to see um, when we start getting inflation coming through, what they will do with interest rates and how then that will impact on uh, things like property prices, as an example. So um, lots of moving parts in this whole thing. I totally agree. I totally agree. All right. Well, look, uh, PJ, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, it has been an interesting show because we're in an interesting time on so many fronts. I mean, uh, there's, as you just said, moving targets. And every time we talk, there's a new metric or something to talk about and actually try and digest and plan for our clients. Oh, there is indeed. And uh, it, it's only going to get, uh, I think, more and more interesting now as the next few months unfold. And I hope that uh, we have a great Christmas here. I know we'll talk again before Christmas, of course, probably several times. But uh, I think the back half of this year now is going to bode well. And then certainly, as I've been saying, the, the first half of next year looks really good for Australia. So I might just uh, duck on into the White House here and have a have a quick, quiet uh, drink with, with the Donald and uh, wish him well in whatever he pursues next. <laughs> well, there you go. PJ's called the uh, the U.S. election for uh, Joe Biden. So uh, there you go. You heard it here first, and with every other talking head around the place as well, got in their own opinions because we're all the same, aren't we, PJ? Just yes, we are. At the mouth. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you very much, PJ from Keystone, for joining us again today, and we've been talking about stocks and shares and the Australian economy and the things that happened with the interest rate drop this week on Melbourne Cup. Uh, if you want to know anything more about any of the topics we discussed or you have topic ideas for us, feel free to email us on the details being going on the screen below the whole time or for those listening on our Zenium Live podcast, you can email us at hello at zenium.live. So H-E-L-L-O at zenium, X-E-N-I-U-M, Dot live no dot coms no dot au's that's all you need or you can call us anytime one three hundred double six double seven eight nine all right today we've been talking about all things money finance and property i'm scotty north and this has been zenium live <laughs>